We study billionaires, and this is episode 68 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And uh, I'll tell you, folks, what an exciting week we're experiencing. Right now, it is 8 January 2016. The new year has arrived. And let me tell you, it's been an interesting start to the financial markets with the way things are leading off here. I saw a stat that said, this is the worst opening for the first week that the stock market has ever had. Worse than anything that they saw in the Great Depression. And it showed, I had this chart. In fact, maybe we'll add it to our show notes so people can see. But there was a chart that laid out the first week opening of every new year over like the last hundred years. And this is the worst opening that we've ever seen. So we're going to talk about that at the start of the show. We're going to talk about these current market conditions, all the stuff that we've really been talking about for the last year and been warning people since about February of 2015. We're going to be talking about all that stuff this morning. In addition to that, we had read a book and the name of the book was Boomerang. And it's also another Michael Lewis book. We didn't really care for this book, but we're going to do a little bit of a book review. We also have the executive summary that we're going to send out to everybody for our subscribers on the show. And we'll talk about that later in the show. And we probably won't hit on it too much because there really wasn't too much that we really wanted to talk about. But anyway, we're going to go ahead and uh, start off the conversation with the current market conditions. So I want to throw this quote over to Stig and uh, just see what he thinks. So Yesterday in Bloomberg, they ran an article, and that was on the 7th of January. And it says, billionaire George Soros has a quote. And his quote is, China has a major adjustment problem. I would say it amounts to a crisis. When I look at the financial markets, there are serious challenges, which reminds me of the crisis we had in 2008. So George Soros, who's well known for breaking the Bank of England, he's a hedge fund firm, gained about 20% a year on average from 1969 to 2011, and he has a net worth of $27.3 billion. Now, I know there's a lot of people from the political side of the house that really don't care for George Soros, but we're going to take all of that, we're going to put it aside, and we're just going to talk about his financial performance and his opinions in the market right now. So, Stig, what's your opinions on Soros' quote? Well, first of all, I always like to uh, to monitor what uh, Soros is doing. I think it's interesting. I don't think it's a long-term play what he's really talking about. I think he's really talking about a short-term adjustment, at least short-term, say something like one to two years, because the way that he's often playing is that he's playing on monetary policies, for instance, which might last like a one to two to three year, whenever that's playing out. And what he's doing, and you said it yourself, Preston, is that he is a hedge fund guy. So he is typically going long something and then he's going short something else to minimize his exposure. And what I can hear that you're saying is that right now he's he's not necessarily just saying that China is bad. He's also saying that China is worse than what he would probably compare it to. So if I had to throw it back to you, would you say that right now his play is to go long the US and then short China? Yes, Absolutely. I think it's interesting to see that Drunken Miller is following a similar approach to George Soros at the moment. 
And if you don't know him, he is. I think his net worth is something like four billion dollars, and he's also a hedge fund manager. Actually, he used to work for George Soros, so I probably shouldn't be too surprised that they're doing something similar. But what he's doing right now is that he's shorting the euro, but he is still going long the U.S. dollar. And what he is saying is that the reason he's doing that is that he sees the monetary policies for those two regions differ. He is seeing that Europe will still keep lowering the rates. So he is thinking that we might see a further devaluation of the euro. So again, this is euro. This is not China, but the play is somewhat the same. So I want to talk about an idea here that you know it might be wrong, it might be right. I don't know. But for me personally, whenever I get in a condition where markets are overvalued, you know, some would argue they're severely overvalued over the last year. I have a tendency to really be attracted to the ideas. And the opinions of people that have a track record of having great performance during stock market crashes. So those people for me are George Soros, Stanley Drunken Miller, Ray Dalio. Those kind of guys just kill it. In fact, they make a lot of their money and a lot of their their gains during market crashes. So for me, those are the people I want to listen to. You know, Warren Buffett. I love the guy. Absolutely love the guy. In fact, I mean, Stig and everyone knows, Stig and I have written all these books. We've built websites around Warren Buffett. But the fact of the matter is Warren Buffett gets crushed during market crashes. He does. He's on record. He's, he said it himself. I've lost 50% of my, my net worth five times or six times from all the market crashes that when they occur. So I'm of the opinion, I don't really want to study Warren Buffett during these times where we think that, that things are overvalued. I want to pay attention to these Stanley Drunkenmiller kind of guys who just kill it. I mean, these guys just murder it during market crashes. These guys might have a 70% positive gain in one year because of their positioning. So I recently wrote an article on uh, 1 January 2016. And I have some videos in there, a video with Ray Dalio, a video of Stanley Drunkenmiller, a couple others, Carl Icahn, and just some of these opinions. And one of the things that Stanley Drunkenmiller talked about in this video that was just published in December of 2015, just last month, Stanley Drunkenmiller made the comment. He said, if you're the type of person that's going to be wanting to make real gains in the next year, next two years, he's like, I think you've got to step away from equities or stocks. He said, if you're trying to invest in stocks and make money in the next year or two, I think you're really going to have a hard time. You're really going to have to step into the commodities and currency space in order to probably have some pretty good and decent returns. And I totally agree with that. I know I've said that that exact thing a couple times in the podcast within the last year where I don't think equities is really the place that you're going to make a lot of money unless you're potentially shorting them. So I think that that's a really important concept. And I also want to hear Stig's opinion on focusing on those types of people whenever you're in this type of market condition. I want to hear what your thoughts are on that, Stig. Well, so I'm really happy you said that, Preston, because you know I often get emails from people and sometimes people are saying, ah, you and Preston, you always agree on everything. And <laughs> like, I don't know, it's a, like it's a bad thing. But to some extent, I guess it's a good thing that we do agree on most things. I think I agree with you that the people to look for is not Warren Buffett, but it's people like Drunken Miller, it's people like George Soros, uh, another gentleman that we'll talk about later in the book, Kyle Bass, someone that really thinks out of the box when it comes to, to crashes. We'll definitely discuss him more later. But I'm still more into value investing and Warren Buffett. Like I can definitely see the 
the points of say going into commodities because of the problems that we now see with currencies. I can definitely see why it might be a good idea to go into you know, shorting S and P five hundred or shorting whatever. But it's just not my play. I think for me in twenty sixteen. I would look at equities carefully, and if I find a good business that I really like at a good price, I wouldn't be surprised if I would start investing in that. I'm not ready, at least not yet, to go into other asset classes. I'm simply not comfortable with that. So, I would actually like to ask you, Preston, because you are actually thinking about commodities right now. Why is it that you think that commodities might be a good play? Well, I think commodities is a horrible play today at the at the start of the year, but I think that it's going to be a fantastic play potentially by the end of the year, and that's what I'm really taking you know close watch of. And I think that, like I said earlier, the main catalyst that I'm really looking for is the U.S. federal, uh, or I'm sorry, the U.S. Fed central bank adjusting their current position of, hey, we're tightening. I mean, you had Stanley Fisher come out and recently and said, yeah, we're going to tighten four times this year in 2016. As long as they're sending that message, this is going to continue to get worse. I promise you, this is not going to get better as the Fed is, the U.S. Fed is saying that kind of stuff. As soon as they change that and they start signaling, we're going to have to ease or we're going to have to do something that's more complementary with our policy. I think that's when you're going to really start to see people start to try to front run their next decision of a major, major devalue on the on the dollar. They're going to have to do QE. I mean, the, the next QE round is going to be just massive. I mean, massive. You thought you saw a lot of QE in the past. Just wait till you see the next one. And I think whenever they start just even initially signaling that, you're going to see, A, I think you're going to see gold really quite solidify, if not start to move in a positive direction at that point. I think that's really the key variable with gold is when they start just signaling that something's going to happen, you're going to see gold really start to take off. And I will be putting that play on. I promise you, I will be buying that pretty heavily. <laughs> and that's something that uh, you know a lot of value investors, especially hardcore Warren Buffett value investors, they're probably covering their ears and they're saying, I'm an idiot. But at the end of the day, we'll find out who was right and wrong. And I'm not I'm not saying that because I'm boasting or I've got an ego. No, definitely not. I could be completely wrong, but I, I can tell you, I'll probably be taking a fairly large position in something like that. The other thing that I'll be looking at is, is commodities in general, because when you look at the commodities index, I mean, it is getting crushed, absolutely crushed. And I think that the turning point for that is going to be really two things. I think it's going to be A, the monetary policy change, because that's going to be the point when you're saying fiat currencies, are. there's not this run on fiat currencies. That's what you're seeing right now. You're seeing a run on fiat currency. So the value of those are going to be going up. And so that's why commodities are going down. What you typically see is that commodities and currencies work in opposites. Okay, When commodities are doing really well, fiat currencies are usually doing performing poorly relative to those commodities. Then you see the inverse of that play. And so as the Fed starts to adjust that, I'm going to be watching commodities in general, particularly oil, uh, very closely. Uh, there's a couple other commodities out there that have just been abused. I'll be watching those very closely for them to start changing course. Now, the concern I think that you have is that the supply and demand on this stuff is still out of whack. So even though the Fed adjusts their policy, 
you still need to see the competition and a lot of these sectors kind of die out and get, you know, kind of crushed, particularly in oil. So even though the Fed might change their policy, I'm still going to be a little hesitant to buy into oil until I start to see kind of a, a detox, if you will, occur in that sector. Whenever I see that happen, let's say we start seeing a lot of defaults in the oil sector, I'm going to be watching that very closely and starting to take a position. You know, And I haven't decided whether I'll take the position just straight in the commodity because I think that that's going to rebound faster than the companies. I think there's going to be a little bit of a lag for the companies to start performing well again. But time will tell. I'm just going to continue to watch it and and, and uh, try to take that position. Yeah. So now if people out there are thinking, yes, finally, Stig and Preston, they uh, disagree on something. I don't know if I necessarily disagree with Preston on this one. Preston has definitely done very well. And he is definitely also looking more careful at things like currencies and oil price or something than I am. So when I say that is because like I took a position in oil when it was like, I don't know, 80 bucks. And then I took another position when it was 60 bucks and another one because it was 40 bucks. So like I'm looking at the fundamentals saying, do I like the price? And if I like the price, I would definitely buy into it. If it goes up, it's good. If it goes down, I can probably buy something more. One thing I want to add um, is that I think Preston's strategy is really good. I think, especially if he knows how to time this, and he's been a lot better than me, so you should probably just listen to him, is that one thing to keep in mind is that demand for oil is actually still it has still been going up in 2015. The demand, like everything, in, if it's commodities, it's currencies, whatever, it's all about supply and demand. And if you look at the demand, the demand for oil has still gone up in 2015. So you heard about like the oil price being slammed, and you're thinking, it doesn't make any sense. Demand has gone up. What's happening? Well, it's no surprise. The supply has just overflowed the market. So it's not enough if demand has gone up by a million barrels a day, whatnot, if you see this huge supply. And I think whenever you hear, for instance, news from China, China is not using as much oil as they used to, or the growth is, is not as, as high as it used to. Right now, China is using something like 11 million barrels a day. The US, just for comparison, is using 18 million barrels a day. But whether or not they're using, say, 300,000 barrels more or less, that is not what is moving the market right now. What is moving the market is both the anticipation, but also the amount of oil that's flowing in the market. And once you see that stopping, and I think that is probably what you're looking at, uh, Preston, that's when you'll see the shift in the oil price. Yeah, and a little bit of my concern too is if you do start having this global contraction with the credit cycle with where we're at, if that does happen, the demand is going to also decrease. It's going to be less than what they're thinking it's going to be. And I think that that's something that you know allows me to continue to have the position that I'm not going to be late to the party here with oil, with respect to oil. I think that that price down in the $30 range, you know, for me, when I'm looking at the next year, I look at oil really $50. If it gets above $50, I'd be very surprised. It could, it could absolutely shoot higher than that. You know, billionaire Boone Pickens had this interview with um, Carl Icahn. Boone Pickens said, you know, now (laughs) this is the best part. Boone Pickens, in his interview with Carl Icahn in December, said that in six months from now, oil is going to be $70 a barrel. Carl Icahn was like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I agree with Carl Icahn. I do not see oil being at $70 in six months from now. I could be wrong. It could be. If this thing unravels itself a whole lot faster than I'm expecting it to, like let's say the next month or two months, this thing just totally unravels itself, then maybe, yeah, you could see it by six months. But I don't necessarily see that happening. What I think 
you see oil up at $70, you're talking like a year from now, if not more. So, and the interesting point that I had is if you rewind the tape six months back, Boone Pickens was saying that oil would be $70 today. So he's been saying that catchphrase for quite a while and it's really not catching on and he's not able to actually substantiate his position. And let me tell you, Boone Pickens, I mean, this dude's been in the industry a whole heck of a lot longer than Preston Pish has, and he's knee-deep in understanding this stuff, so he's maybe somebody to listen to. I just want to throw that contrarian point of view out there by another billionaire that has a different opinion than me. But I'm standing by, and and those are really the two critical variables for me, which is the defaults, a large, substantial amount of defaults in the industry, and also the Fed changing their policy is really going to be my turning point where I try to start taking a position. Yeah, and Preston, I think it's really interesting you talk about that and the problems that you see in the oil sector right now because still that's just very, it's a different approach than, for instance, what I do because you're saying, okay, so you have a lot of problems in the oil sector, you want to stay out of it or at least wait until it drops. I'm definitely still seeing the same warning signs as you are. But for instance, I took a position in Exxon not long ago because Exxon, obviously they will be hurt, but this balance sheet is super strong. They'll probably still be making money in the years to come. I just want to say, like, that's what I'm saying. And if something should go wrong in the sector, I think you're right. It might be. The time for me is, is just too tricky. And this is the reason why I keep putting the decision off. Because at the end of the day, if oil's at $30 a barrel, all these oil companies have gotten, they've had a very horrible last two years. I mean, horrible. And if I think if you bought them at the price that they're at right now, and you didn't look at it for five years and you opened up your account and look, it's going to be a very good investment for you. I fully believe that. But for me, I feel like I could still get that same price. My opinion, I feel like I'm going to be able to still get that same price in six months from now. And I think that I can make a whole lot of money in other investments between right now and January 2016 and call it the middle of the summer. That time frame, that six-month period of time, I have other things that I'm doing with my money that I don't particularly want to talk about on the show because they're very speculative and it's not something that I really even want to put that thought in people's minds because it's such a speculative thing. I want to talk about investments on this show. I don't want to talk about speculation and potentially because this is a great topic, okay? The idea of conviction. If you're the type of person that makes an investment and you fully, I mean, just really have a lot of conviction behind that position because of the knowledge that you've accumulated on it, you're going to continue to hold that position. And if that position moves against you, if you have a high level of conviction, you're going to buy more because you have this opinion, you have this theory that it's going to move in a certain direction. So I get in these positions where I have a lot of conviction behind something and I'm very comfortable buying it. But if I told somebody else about that position, it would take me a day to substantiate why I might have such a high level of conviction and theory behind why I have it. And even then, they might not fully understand or have the same opinion of why I have it. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to throw out these, these picks and these ideas that are A, very complex ideas that are macro ideas or whatever, and people just action them. And then they have no conviction. And then when it moves against them 5 or 10%, they sell out of the position. Okay, That's what I want to avoid. And that's why I don't talk about all the things that I'm doing, especially the speculative things, because A, I don't want people to be speculative. <laughs> I think when you get it to a certain point with your investing, you can be a little bit more speculative than, than not. But I really want people to focus on investing. And I think right now, and this is what I wrote in the article that I published on 1 January, I think one of the best things for people to be doing is having a fairly substantial cash position. 
You know, we beat up on Warren Buffett a little bit, but you go to Warren Buffett's balance sheet on Berkshire Hathaway, and the last one that I saw was what seventy billion dollars of cash that he's sitting on. It's a lot of money, and so you know we're saying he doesn't perform well in the market, basically because Berkshire Hathaway's you know victimized by the people that that hold the shares and and sell it. But at the end of the day, Warren Buffett is a very smart dude, and he is preparing for this in a very good way. He's just not doing the Stanley Drunken Miller and George Soros place. He's not. He's he's going to sit on cash, and that's what we're recommending for the audience is that you would be in a substantial cash position. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, well, Warren Buffett does better than the market, you know, when there's a downturn in the market, but he doesn't do the same play as the hedge fund guys that actually profits during downturn. So what Warren Buffett does is that he loses less than the rest of the market, which is also extremely valuable, obviously. I have another point to what you're saying, Preston, about not always disclosing everything that you're doing. And I kind of struggle with the same thing because we're here to 
I don't know if we if we're here to 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 guide people. I think that's up to people for themselves to the, to determine that. But I think in a way we are obliged to say what we're doing because we I don't, just don't want to talk my position to thousand and thousand people. And then you know people can have this thought that wow, Stig is speculating that people do as he say and he would do something that's opposite. But at the same time, you don't want people not necessarily in a bad way, but to be messing with your head. Like you don't want to be. Hey, I'm stuck. I've been investing in in oil, and uh, since I have that, and since I said that to so many people, I can never change my position. And I think that's also very important to stress. So hopefully, you will have a chance to meet uh, Preston out in Berkshire, and we might be saying like, "Oh, Stick will be saying I'm short oil," and Preston will be saying, "I love oil more than everything." I can't see this happening, but you know, take it for what it is. And like, it's also. Important for us to stress that it's nice to have a platform where you can change your mind. So basically, this is I think Preston just said this, but we're recording this on January eighth. But you know, tomorrow we might do something completely else. And now I I've said that I took a position Exxon not too long ago. Whenever we meet, I might think it's the most horrible company you can see out there. And and right now, the reason why I did that, the right now is just that I don't see the same place as Preston. At least I don't have the courage to to pull the trigger on the same. Alternative asset classes. So right now, I'm just saying, I can get what like three, four percent, whatever dividend yield at the moment, and just wait for the rebound. That's that's my play. If I can get the kind of return 2016 while I wait for the rebound, um, I'm heavily exposed to oil. That's fine for me. And Preston might have uh, another opinion because he's he's looking somewhere else. Yeah, my approach is drastically different. <laughs> But I'm a lot more aggressive. Like I, I, when you meet our personalities, I'm a, a lot more aggressive. My plan for 16 is to have an epic year, but you know sometimes those end in, in chaos and disaster. So <laughs> it's definitely a different approach. But what I want to talk about on the show is good, sound advice. So let me talk about this. So I had a friend that I said, you know, I think that a cash position is probably a very good position to be in going into 2016. This person took my advice. And the first week with this open, you know, the market was down, let's just call it almost 10%. And so I was talking to this person on the phone and I said, wow, you had one heck of a week. You basically, you know, made $100,000 in your position. And the person said to me, they said, what do you mean I made a hundred thousand? I didn't make a hundred thousand dollars. I didn't make anything. And I said, yeah, but you, it's always relative to something else. I said, if you would have continued to basically own the index or the S&P 500, which is kind of what the person had, if you continued to own that, you would have had you know $900,000 in your portfolio instead of a million. And the person was kind of like, yeah, yeah, I, I guess. And I'll tell you, folks, I think that this idea is the trap. This idea is the trap that gets investors like nothing else because they don't understand the power of protecting your downside. We had William Green on our show, and the very first person in William Green's book, he wrote this book that was just a fantastic book that outlines the greatest minds of investing. And one of the very first people in his book was a gentleman that was, he just recently passed away. This man shorted the market during the Great Depression. When the market crashed during the Great Depression, he was actually shorting the stock market. So in this book, in big giant quotes, he was asked, what's the most important thing investors need to know? And what this gentleman said, single-handedly most important thing investors need to know is how to protect their downside risk. Okay, And I totally agree with that. And I think that the problem that a lot of people have is a psychological problem that if they don't feel like something is actually going up, 
or progressing, they don't see that as a win. So going back to my friend that, that I was talking to on the phone that basically had a $100,000 week in a week, he had a $100,000 week because he had moved into a straight liquid, you know, short term bond cash type position that didn't move an inch as the market, as the S&P was down 10%. He didn't really feel like he did, you know, he, he wasn't happy. And for me, I'm thinking this dude just killed it and he wasn't happy. And so I think that people got to wrap their heads around that because that guy just killed the stock market, absolutely murdered it. He could just be completely flat with the S&P for the rest of the year. And if he takes that 10% gain, he just killed it. You know, professional investors, if they can beat the market by 2%, they are a master at their craft. So I think people really need to have a lot of respect for that idea of protecting your downside risk. And just because it doesn't go up, that is a win, folks, if, if everything else goes down. I'm so happy you said that, Preston, because I was just looking at my stocks and I was thinking, oh, stake, they have just dropped so much. But then, first of all, I thought, wow, that means I can buy more. <laughs> and the second thing was that, well, luckily, I'm 70% plus in, in cash. Like when I say I'm heavily exposed to oil, that is in those 30%. And you kind of, it's like, it's all relative, right? So if you have 20% in oil and you have 30% in equities, you feel you're heavily exposed in oil. But you might also have like 99% of your whole portfolio in oil. And that's really when you feel like you're crushed. Like I feel like I've been making a fortune as president saying, but a fortune in terms of I've been losing less than I otherwise would if I was really invested in equities. That's exactly right. So that's the key point now, which what people don't understand, and I'll tell you, Wes Gray does a great job of talking this, Dr. Wesley Gray, who we had on the show a few episodes back. It's all about asset allocation. This is what Tony Robbins talked about in his book whenever he interviewed all these different people. You can't time the market. You might think that that's what we're talking about a lot of times. We're not talking about that at all. What we're talking about is the asset allocation. As things became more riskier in the markets, I moved more and more and more into a cash position. I'll tell you, for the last year, I've been really, really struggling because I've had to be patient. I've had to sit on my hands for a long period of time, just really not doing too much because I knew there was a lot of risk in the market. And I adjusted my allocation of what it is that I own based on that risk profile. So whenever I was looking at stocks, to me, they seemed extremely risky because of the downside risk. So I start moving out of it. I don't have a large position. I'll tell you, you go back three or four years ago, I was like 100% in stocks. Okay. Not today. <laughs> Not even close. So I brought down this book and one of the people on Twitter hit me up and said, hey, did you read Ray Dalio's Economic Principles? And I was like, yes. <laughs> Not only did I read it, but I love it. And I wanted to just talk about this just a little bit. And maybe read through one section of this book. And uh, sorry, Stig, if I'm going off on a tangent here, but this is something that I really wanted to talk about because I think it definitely relates back to a lot of the discussions that we've been having with currencies and commodities. And I also wanted to just highlight to people how important this book that I'm about to talk to you about is. So, Ray Dalio, everyone knows, we talked about the video that Ray Dalio made talking about credit cycles and you know basically how he sees the economy working like a machine. What a lot of people don't realize is that Ray Dalio has about a 300-page PDF online for free called Economic Principles. And what it is, is he has basically the, the first 25 pages of the book talk about a textual form 
uh, where he's written out his ideas of how the economic machine works. You'll see some things in there that you don't necessarily see in the video. It's well worth your time. He then goes through a deep analysis, a 100-page analysis of debt cycles, leveragings and deleveraging, short-term cycles, long-term cycles, and he uses real-world events that have happened over the last 100 years. Then he gets into this third section, which is a, another 150 pages, where he talks about productivity and structural reform and where he's basically investing his money and where. I treasure this guide. This thing is like one of my most prized possessions. I, I keep it on my bookshelf. I went out and took the PDF and I got it printed, you know, one copy for myself, and I had it bound at the, like the local Kinko's. I would highly recommend everyone in our audience, we'll have a link to this free PDF. You don't have to buy anything. You can download this PDF. Uh, we'll have a link on our site. One of the things that Dalio talks about in this guide that I just found insanely useful for me to understand how currencies work and how commodities work. And we talked about this a little bit in the show. So this is one of the reasons I want to read this section. This is a little bit of a, this will probably take me about five minutes to read this, but I think that this is something that's very useful and it's something that I think about often as I'm thinking about how currencies work and how commodities work. So here it goes. I'm going to read this. And this is from Ray Dalio, billionaire, net worth about $16 billion, the guy that wrote this. Since the value of money has fallen over time relative to the value of just about everything else, we could tie the currency to just about anything in order to show how this monetary system would have worked. For example, since a one pound loaf of white bread in 1946 cost 10 cents, let's imagine we tied the dollar to the bread. In other words, let's imagine a monetary system in which the government in 1946 committed to buy bread at 10 cents a pound and stuck to that until now. Today, a pound loaf of white bread costs $2.75. Of course, if they had used this monetary system, the price would have risen to $2.75 because we all would have bought other bread from the government at 10 cents instead of from the free market until the government ran out of bread. But for our example, let's say that the price of bread is $2.75. I'd certainly be willing to take all of my money, buy bread from the government at 10 cents, and sell it in the market at $2.75, and others would do the same. This process would reduce the amount of money in circulation which would then reduce the prices of all goods and services, and it would increase the amount of bread in circulation, thus lowering its price more rapidly than other prices. In fact, if the supply and demand for bread were not greatly influenced by its convertibility to currency, this tie would have dramatically slowed the last 50 years' rapid growth in currency and credit. So obviously, what the currency is convertible into has an enormous impact on this process. For example, if instead of tying the dollar to bread, we chose to tie it to eggs since the price of a dozen eggs in 1946 was $0.70 cents instead of $0.10, and today it's $2 for the price of eggs, currency and credit growth would have been less restricted. Okay, So what he talks about here, ideally, if one has a commodity-based currency system, one wants to tie the currency to something that is not subject to great price swings in supply and demand. For example, if the currency were tied to bread, bakeries would in effect have the power to produce money, leading to increased inflation. Gold, and to a much lesser extent, silver, have historically proven more stable than most other currency backings, although they are by no means perfect. In the second type of monetary system, in a fiat system in which the amount of money is not construed by the ability to exchange it for a commodity, the growth of money and credit is very much subject to the influence of the central bank and the willingness of borrowers and lenders to create credit. 
So this is such a profound idea where you're talking about when you back a fiat currency to a commodity that can't be manipulated or adjusted in its supply, you're going to have a much tighter credit cycles aren't going to be as nearly as pronounced. And as you step away from that and you get into something that the price that it's tied to is very volatile or nothing at all, you see these credit cycles that go into these big swings. And, and what you can see in this as well is you can see how currencies and commodities are tied at the hip. It's almost like they're tethered together because something always has to be related back to something else in order to talk about price. So that's just a little glimpse of some of the stuff that's in this book that billionaire Ray Dalio has written. So I know that was a little bit long. I'm sorry to just keep on reading and droning on Stig. He's, he's yawning right now. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I like your point first. All right. So we said that we were going to talk about this book, and it's probably going to be one of our shortest book summaries ever. We're talking about Michael Lewis's Boomerang book. Uh, for anybody, if you don't want to read this book, which is what I recommend, don't read this book. I didn't really like this book. Stig, did you like this book? No, I, I really didn't like. I actually considered shooting you an email saying, let's not do this book. And then I came up with this idea. Hmm. Could we just do something with the current mild conditions and then still say that we kind of did a book? And that's what we did, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what we did. And I almost sent the same email, but here we are. We did complete the book. I was not impressed. And, you know, to be honest with you, Michael Lewis, probably one of my favorite writers. It was kind of a weird book. He goes around the world. Michael Lewis travels around the world and he looks at all these different economies. Like he starts off in Iceland then he goes to a different location and he basically talks about a lot of the issues that have unfolded in some of these countries. And there's a lot of interesting points. I'm not going to lie. There's some interesting points, but in totality, I didn't really get the gist of the book. Like what was it? What was the big main theme of the book? And I just didn't really capture that. And I think that's yeah. probably more of my frustration than anything else is like, there just really wasn't a, a point to the book other than just talking about different locations that he went to and the trials and tribulations and the corruption of, of different governments and how they didn't know what they were doing, investing in certain markets and how, you know, eventually the, the country paid for their lack of understanding of what they had invested in and what they had done over a long period of time and devaluing their buying power within the country and, and things like that. So I'm going to throw it over to Stig. He has some main points from the book. Yeah, so I think what Preston is saying is that Michael Lewis just uh, travels around the world and he starts in, in Iceland. And I think the key takeaway I had from his, his story in Iceland is how basically you can manipulate asset prices. And I guess that's basically what the financial crisis was all about. But I think he had a very interesting anecdote to that. So just to give you a point of reference, so from 2003 to 2007, the stock market was up nine times in Iceland. For comparison, the States, it, it doubled, which is still a lot, but just think about it nine times. That's crazy. And one of the reasons, uh, and this is basically just assets, and it doesn't have to be stocks. Specifically, this was property. So basically, one of the things that went wrong on Iceland was the way that they were handling the assets and how it was inflated. So say that I own, say, a property, and Preston wants to buy that from me. Say the price is $1 million. So he would borrow $1 million from the bank and then buy the assets from me. Then what would I do? I would like that asset back, for instance, and Preston would say to me, "It's now it costs 1.5 million." So I would go into the bank and borrow up to 1.5 million, 
and then buy it back from Preston. Now, it was a bit more advanced than this. It was not just two people because that would be too obvious, but they have like a whole circle of people doing this. So they were passing around assets and then borrowing it uh, to the inflated value and then spending that money. And I think that was one of the things that was really disgusted me about the whole story about Iceland. If that is really what has happened, I guess I was not too surprised of what did happen up there. So that was definitely one of those scary stories that uh, hopefully shouldn't be repeated. For the second point, then he went to Greece. And I think Michael Lewis's whole story about Greece was kind of strange. Like, I was kind of waking up thinking, did I really listen to an hour about some monks in Greece? Like... Did, did you get the same impression, Preston? Well, to be honest with you, this is maybe one of the parts in the book that I liked. I, I Oh, really? Yeah, I liked the Greece part. I think it was an interesting story. Now, I didn't think that it really added much value to my understanding of markets or anything like that, but it was kind of a neat story. It just didn't apply to anything. You know what I mean? So I liked it, but I didn't like how it fit into the broader context of the book. Yeah. Well, I think my Greece story is that Greece is such a weird country, and especially the way that they manipulate the numbers, even you know from the states. So if you're thinking, how could Greece ever adapt to the euro? Uh, because there is a lot of uh, rules and regulations they have to follow. And for instance, one of them is that they cannot have more than 3% deficit to GDP. So what did the Greek government do? They just moved expenses like pension and defense. They just erased that off the books. They cooked the books. <laughs> And this is actually my favorite story because there was also rules in terms of inflation. And apparently there was a lot of inflation in Greece back then whenever they were adopting the euro. So one of the guys, his job was to figure out how we can get less inflation. And what he did was that the way that you measure inflation is that you have a basket of goods. And apparently back then in Greece, tomatoes was very expensive. So what he did was he removed tomatoes from their inflation index because they were very expensive. Good. And suddenly they have lower inflation. I was like, Boom. oh my God, it's, it's what happened. It's like magic. The inflation goes down when you take the tomatoes out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have anything to Greece or do you want to go to, uh, to Ireland? There, well, there was a little bit of an interesting discussion with the monks and buying up all this real estate. It was, it was quite, a, I enjoyed the Greece portion of the book. I thought that it was really interesting and the talking about how they had cooked the books and how they got into the euro, I think that that was a really interesting discussion. Doesn't really fit into a broader theme of the book, but that, that's all my only comments. Too. Yeah, I think I definitely didn't like too much. Oh, sorry, Michael Lewis. I, I love your books and it, this is just so negative. But I, I did definitely didn't like the island part. I think it was, um, I think what Michael Lewis does really well is that he has these interesting anecdotes that can really build up a story and really build up characters. He's a great storyteller. That's the one thing I will say. Like, that's what Michael Lewis does really well. This guy will set up a story, and I think that's why so many of his books have been turned into motion pictures is because he's a great storyteller. So you will get that in the book. But this one was really lacking as far as the structure and just the layout, and it, it was kind of a mess. You could tell he probably put this one together pretty fast. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., 
Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I, I think the one thing I did like about his story about Ireland is his discussion about when is a bank systematically important. And I think... We have this discussion in uh, in Europe. You definitely have that discussion in the States. Like, when is the bank too big to fail? And one of the problems that they have in Ireland was that they have this Anglo-Irish bank. It was a very small bank, six branches, no ATMs. And basically what they did was they were borrowing money from foreigners. And then they were uh, lending it out to people that want to develop uh, land and develop real estate. And... One way or the other, they convinced the government that it was systematically important for Ireland. So when all this turned south, obviously it did, whenever the bubble burst, like all Irish citizens had to pay for this. And I think that was probably one of the lessons from the financial crisis that when should the government go in and guarantee basically anything? I think that was my main takeaway from this chapter. Kind of an interesting point to piggyback on that, Stig, where you're talking about the citizens half and the pay for it. Right now over in Saudi Arabia, just to kind of tie it to a real-world example, what he's talking about. Over in Saudi Arabia, what they're doing because, you know, believe it or not, even though they're the lowest cost producer with all this oil stuff, they might be the first person to break, which I just think talks tremendously about the efficiency of the operations that they have over there. And I guess how much money is being sucked out at the highest level within some of these companies that are being run over in Saudi Arabia. But what they've done is they've actually increased the price of their gas and a lot of their other commodities by almost like 40% in order to try to offset 
the ever-growing deficit, or not deficit, but they're because they were in a surplus, but they're chewing away that surplus at such a rapid pace that they're going to be taking on a deficit. And in order to try to combat that, they're now pushing those prices and everything off to the citizens in order to protect the public debt from expanding over in Saudi Arabia. So that's a real-world example of what's happening right now. Yeah, and I think T-Bone Piggins said, and this is the same interview as the president was referring to before, he's saying that right now with the oil price, it costs the Saudis $500 million a day. So it's very, very costly what you're seeing at the moment. And as you can see, we didn't really want to talk about this book. We just want to talk about current events. Yeah, we just want to talk about oil, as always. (laughs) I, I have one final point about the book, and I just want to say that because it was hilarious. That was about Germany. And so this is really a story about how complex an economic system can be and how intransparent it is to everyone looking in. So if people are not familiar with this, and we have something called the EU Rescue Fund, which is has really been saving a lot of countries like Ireland and right now is saving Greece, or we think is really saving Greece from all the troubles after here in the financial crisis. Big, big think. Yeah, yes. So this is what Michael Lewis is saying in one of his chapters here in the book. He's saying that what's happening is that Germany gives money to the EU Rescue Fund. And then the Rescue Fund gives money to the Irish government, which in turn gives them to the Irish banks. Now, so you can guess what does the Irish banks do with all the money now? Well, they use them to pay off their loans to the German banks. So suddenly you have just you just have a circle here and money is just fluctuating around in Europe so that everyone can say that no one is defaulting, but the money is really just going round and round. The biggest concern with the euro is Germany. Because once the Germans have enough and they're gonna stop basically bailing everybody out, that's when you're gonna see major issues with the euro. It's gonna be interesting to see how it all plays out. I think Germany's getting to a breaking point with some of this stuff. Yeah, I think Wow, that was really short, Preston. And we even had a chance to talk about Saudi Arabia and oil in the meantime. That was basically all I had for the book. And it was like, it wasn't that short, was it? Like, at least a few hundred pages. At the very end of the book there, there was a discussion with Arnold Schwarzenegger and state bonds in the United States, which was a really interesting discussion. I kind of like some of that just because he was talking about Arnold and just the way he was describing him was kind of neat. I don't know if any Arnold Schwarzenegger fans out there, but if you are, it's definitely worth your time to read his description of Arnold and the discussion on state bonds and how you know states like California are just, wow, you talk about a lot of friction in the system. So that was kind of a neat discussion as well. But here's the thing, folks. If you don't want to buy this book, which is what we recommend, do not buy this book. Go out and download our executive summary of the book. You can kind of scan through that, see if you know we hit the high points of every chapter. The summary is about five pages long. So if you go through our summary, you're going to be able to really capture the key points of the book. And if it's something that does interest you, then go out and, and read it. But I think for this one, just read our summary on this and see what you think. And I'd call it quits and move on to the next book. Anyway, if you want to get our summaries, this summary, any book, we read a book about every two weeks. We send that out to our community. Sign up on our email list at theinvestorspodcast.com. It's completely free. So you can sign up on that. If you don't like it, you can unsubscribe at any point in time. It's not going to hurt our feelings. We really do do it for the audience. So great to have people on that list. The last thing that I want to talk about real fast is we are going to Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting at the last week of April of 2016. We sent out a message to our email subscribers with our last executive summary with a link that people could use to sign up to go to the Berkshire meeting and hang out with us. Uh, Stig and I will be at the meeting. 
A lot of the people that we've had on the podcast are going to be at the meeting. I'm, I'm assuming Guy Spear will be there. Jillian, who uh, interviewed Warren Buffett, she'll be out there. Uh, there'll be tons of people that are going to be there. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to bring a lot of these guests to come over and meet our community. Right now, we have, I want to say, like 160 people that signed up in the first week. So it's going to be a, a big audience, a big community from the Investors Podcast out there. We cannot wait to interact with you guys. A lot of the emails that I've been getting from people about this event, they're saying, well, you know, I'm not really that much of a hardcore investor. I'm just learning right now. I'm getting my feet wet. I've only been doing it for a year. Is this something that I, you know, is appropriate for me to go? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is definitely appropriate for you to go. In fact, you're probably going to be some of the people that we enjoy talking with the most. So please, 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 if you're in that local area or you want to fly out for just like a little mini vacation and just see something really neat to see Warren Buffett on the stage with Charlie Munger and Bill Gates and all those guys, come out for this event. It's really going to be a great time. And you know, the, the thing that I took away from the last shareholders meeting more than anything was the people that I got to meet. You're going to meet some of the most interesting people at these things. Yeah. Last time we met Harry, right? And now he's a part of the mastermind group. So like those are some of the people that you'll get to connect with and you'll get to connect with people from our community and you know some of the bonds that we that we had from that meeting are just so strong with some of the people that attended last time. So highly recommend that if you guys have the extra cash to pay for the ticket to get out there and to pay for the hotel, that's pretty much all it takes. Oh, one other thing I want to clear up the, with the meeting. In order to get credentials for the Berkshire meeting, you only have to have a B share. You do not have to own an A share which is like $200,000. So you don't have to own an A share. You can actually own a B share and still attend the event. So a B share is like $129, I want to say right now. So you can buy one B share and then you can apply for your credentials to attend the meeting. So just realize that it's a lot easier to go than you might think. So one of the most useful tools that we have that Stig and I use is audibles.com. We use audibles because we can listen to all these books when we're traveling on the road and I've got four kids. I don't know if I've ever really talked about that too much on the show, but it's like a circus at my house and it's very hard to read books. So a lot of the times when I'm in the car and, and on a 30 minute commute or whatever, I'm able to do two things at one time. I can drive in the car and I can read a book. And there's many of other opportunities that you might have. You might be cutting your yard or you might be washing dishes or whatever. You can, you can do two things at once when you do audibles. And this has been a, a huge part of our ability to plow through so many books and to be able to learn and just share a lot of this information. So if you go to our website and you use any of the links for our audibles, you can get your first download completely for free. Some of these books are like 30 to $40. So if you pick one of those books, it's, it's like a three thirty to $40 gift from Stig and I to download your very first audible book. So we highly recommend that you guys use that link. So that's all we have for this week on the show. We thoroughly enjoyed talking some of this current market conditions. We'll continue to watch what's happening in the market, provide you guys information through our emails, through our podcasts, through our tweets and Facebook posts and all that stuff to help keep you educated on some of the things and, and some of the important variables that we're looking at as the market conditions continue to change. We just really want to thank our audience for joining us this week, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, 
you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 